My name is William Toady, Captain U.S. Navy, retired, and my book is From CEO to CEO, A Practical Guide for Transitioning from Military to Industry Leadership. Today I'm going to be talking about Chapter 10 of my book, Defending a Legacy. So let's get to it. I opened chapter 10 with a story from when I was running um, a business that ran the Navy's largest networks. As you may know, there are millions of bot attacks on defense networks every day. And part of our job was to defend the network against those attacks. And one day we detected a vulnerability in the network that had been introduced by a specific Navy command. And as we patched that vulnerability successfully, for some reason, a senior Navy leader decided to make it known within Navy hierarchy that it had been our failure that that vulnerability occurred, which was not true. And so I gently prodded the leader to say, look, come on, we both know that it was a Navy command that introduced that vulnerability. You need to correct the record. And when he didn't do that, I not so gently started to suggest that if he did not correct the record publicly, I would. And, you know, some of my Navy friends didn't take that feedback very well. They suggested I was, you know, that the customer was always right and I was potentially ruining my relationship with the customer and that I was trying going after the almighty dollar instead of defending the customer. In fact, in this case, the paradox that by making my customer mad, I was actually risking future dollars seemed to escape my friends. And I insisted that the Navy correct the record for two reasons. Number one, it was the truth. And number two, my company actually provided network security to thousands of other companies and government organizations worldwide. And by blaming us for a failure that wasn't our fault, the Navy had the potential effect of reducing trust and confidence in our abilities and perhaps even causing some of those other clients, customers, to shift to organizations that weren't as good as we were, thereby increasing global risk. And I don't want to exaggerate the point, but you get my point. We were actually pretty good at what we did. And by blaming us, it was creating uncertainty in our abilities that should not have been created. And so eventually the Navy did correct the record. I'm happy about that. But the experience brought to mind another case where the service I love, the Navy, stuck to their guns in the face of a vast amount of data to the contrary and inappropriately and unnecessarily for decades, causing the Navy to actually lose face, to use that expression. And that is the case of Captain Charles B. McVeigh, the captain of USS Indianapolis in the final year of World War II. That's the cruiser Indianapolis. To refresh your memory, the submarine I commanded was named USS Indianapolis. It was named after the World War II cruiser 
CA-35. And if you've seen the movie Jaws, you know the, the story of the Indianapolis. It was torpedoed in the waning days of the war after delivering the Hiroshima bomb to Tinian. The men the, that were on the crew that survived the sinking spent five days in the water. Out of a crew of about 1,200, 900 survived the sinking. After five days, only 316 were still alive uh, to be rescued. And it's a horrific story. Another part of the story that's true is that Captain McVeigh, the captain of the cruiser, was court-martialed for having a ship sunk. And I got pulled into the story in the late 90s when I was captain of the submarine Indianapolis. And the survivors of the cruiser decided that since I was captain of a submarine, I could help them in their decades-long effort to exonerate Captain McVeigh. Sadly, Captain McVeigh killed himself in 1968 after putting up with years of horrible correspondence from families of crew members of his that were lost at sea. After all, the Navy, when they court-martialed him, seemed to blame him for sinking a ship. Why should the families of the lost at sea feel otherwise? And for decades, the Navy stuck to their guns and defended the court-martial. And, you know, there was really, until the late 90s, no evidence that anybody could point to saying that the, the court-martial, in fact, was defective. But when I was pulled into the effort, what I decided needed to be done was to do an actual computer model of the way that the cruiser had been sunk to determine if there was any hope for saving the cruiser, you know, that Captain McVeigh could have taken advantage of to prevent this from happening. The specific charge that McVeigh was court-martialed on was failure to zigzag. So if one could prove that had he been zigzagging, it wouldn't have mattered, the ship would have been sunk anyway, then the, the charge that failure to zigzag hazarded a ship would be a false charge. Now there have been hand-waving statements over the decades that it wouldn't have mattered if he had been zigzagging or not. And in fact, the Navy brought the submarine commander of the Japanese submarine to McVeigh's court-martial to testify against him. And the submarine commander said in the court-martial it would not have mattered if the Indianapolis had been zigzagging, that the tactic he used, which, would have been to, which was to fire a spread of six torpedoes, would have sunk him regardless of whether it was zigzagging or not. But the problem was nobody had ever proved that that was true. There were statements made, but it had never been demonstrated to be true. But what I could do as a submarine commander was use my submarine computers to model the torpedo attack and model the Indianapolis zigzagging. And I guess I wasn't surprised when by modeling that zigzag, a random set of zigzag patterns, it wouldn't have mattered that at least one torpedo would have struck the ship. And once a torpedo hits the ship, its ability to maneuver is degraded and it's easy to press a secondary attack and sink it. So the point is that I was able to provide evidence, computer-based modeling, that even if Indianapolis had been zigzagging, the outcome would not have been different. Therefore, McVeigh didn't hazard his ship by not zigzagging. Therefore, he should not have been charged. Now, there was no way to have done this in his defense in 1945. So given what the court knew at the time, the court came to the right conclusion in convicting him. 
because at the time, there was no way to know that zigzagging would not have helped. So I understood the Navy's failure to change its opinion over the intervening decades. But in 1999, when I was able to provide new evidence that in fact exonerated McVeigh, the Navy still, to my great sorrow, stuck to its guns and refused to change its position on the matter. And in fact, continued to insist that the court-martial had been proper until the matter was brought to Congress. And in fact, Congress in 2000 passed a bill, a sense of Congress resolution, exonerating Captain McVeigh for the sinking of his ship. And at the, at the survivor's request, it was my great honor to incorporate that exoneration language into Captain McVeigh's service record in May of 2001. Now, why do I tell this story? I tell the story because regardless of which side of the government fence you're on, every organization is structured to defend itself. And here I was in an industry job facing the Navy and watching the Navy attempt to defend itself that in saying that my company and my, my organization had been responsible when it had not. That should not have surprised me. My experience in 1999 and 2000 and 2001 should already have taught me that the government will defend itself just like a company. Was I, in, in the year that I was defending my company against the false charges, was I circling my wagons? Of course I was. But the government is perfectly capable of circling its wagons when those conditions exist as well. And you should remember that. But don't sneer. Only leaders who are insecure about their personal leadership skills will sneer. Always assume that people are not coming to issues with malice, that they believe that they're righteous and innocent of whatever charges they're being, um, that are being leveled against them, and be unemotional as you approach these issues in your civilian career. That's chapter 10. In chapter 11, titled Taking the Helm in a Crisis, I'm going to talk about some of the military skills I think you should leverage when you transition to industry. See you in chapter 11. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>